unemployment is a dead weight loss for society. And a society like ours that does it on a scale we're currently doing, that is for me a sign that capitalism as a system is no longer deserving of our loyalty or support because it's not working for the overwhelming majority of the people. Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. As usual, I'm going to do my song and dance for Counterpunch as I bring out the uh, panhandling skills and remind you that alternative media is so critical, particularly in times like this when we have so much information, information overload, oftentimes quite sad and troubling information. But we need to support those media outlets that we can trust, that we can turn to in these kinds of uh, times. So Counterpunch, I believe, is one of those. And if you agree, please consider getting a subscription to the magazine. That will give you a subscription to the uh, subscriber-only section, which is coming up in our uh, website um, upgrade, I guess, in July or so. So please do look for that. And those of you who have had the magazine subscription will automatically have access to that as well. You can also make a donation through the PayPal and all the usual stuff there. So please consider it. Okay, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to speak with him again. It's been a few years since we chatted on this show. Uh, He's somebody well known to a lot of us, Richard Wolf, professor of economics. He's an author. He's a radio host. Uh, Economic Update is the show on radio and TV. Democracyatwork.info is the website. So many resources there to follow, not only from Richard, but a lot of other really talented people that really do uh, deserve praise. So uh, with that said, Richard Wolf, thanks so much for coming back to Counterpunch. Very glad to be here, Eric. So, Richard, you've been writing uh, recently, of course, as everyone has, about the situation going on globally and from an economic perspective. And you really struck a chord with me in one of your pieces. I guess it was about a week or so ago. Uh, We republished it on Counterpunch. It was entitled Mass Unemployment is a Failure of Capitalism. And I really love the piece primarily because I think it hits at the heart of the issue at exactly the right moment. So, Richard, I guess I'll just open the floor and ask you to explain for us a little bit what you mean when you say that mass unemployment is a failure of capitalism? 
Yes, it, it's always struck me, uh, being an economics professor all my life, uh, the, the terribly lopsided, one-sided way that my profession, economics, uh, teaches people about something as important as unemployment. You know, every honest person will tell you uh, that they have had moments in their lives when they feared that they might lose their position, lose their job. A hundred different reasons could make that happen. It's a kind of frightening thought. Many of us banish it out of our minds, even in those few occasions when it flits through. But it's there. It's an ominous situation. And we all know why. Uh, we live in a society, most of us, in which we spend pretty much what we get. A good number of us are in debt, which means we spend more than what we get. And if you're in debt, and even if you're not, but especially if you are in debt, unemployment is, is a terrible uh, disaster. It means you can't pay the, your debts. You may not be able to hold on to the things you bought with the debt, etc., etc. So it's a very real problem. And yet it is taught in this bizarre way. And let me explain. It's treated as though it were something of a mystery that, gee, suddenly uh, we get this situation uh, in which a large number of people are thrown out of work. Uh, this terrible thing I just mentioned comes down on them like a ton of bricks. Um, and we are all told, look, have some sympathy. This is a, a, a tough situation. And we are always giving it some sort of special explanation as, as though it, it were a, a kind of surprise almost. And I've always been struck how bizarre this is. We live in a capitalist system. Capitalism started in England, I don't know, 17th century, uh, most of us date it and spread from there to Western Europe, North America, and eventually the whole world now. Uh, so it's had three or four centuries to really show what it is. And across that time, on average, wherever capitalism has settled in as a dominant system, there's a business cycle, a downturn, a, a recession, a depression, a crash. We have a lot of words because this is so recurring every four to seven years. To be surprised by something which for centuries has recurred every few years is itself what is surprising. Look, let's take the moment right now. Here we are in the year 2020. Let's see. American capitalism has had three crashes in 20 years. The dot-com crisis in 2000, the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, and now the coronavirus crisis in 2020. Oh, look, three in the 20 years of this new century, that works out to a little under, yup, seven years between them. So it is a recurring problem. And it is a failure of capitalism because everyone, I think, can understand by keeping it really simple. When people are unemployed, think of it this way. John or Mary loses his, her job. They do not immediately die. They do not kill themselves, nor does anybody else kill them. Therefore, they continue to consume. They have to eat, they have to clothe themselves, shelter themselves, and so on. The difference between employment and unemployment then amounts to this. With unemployment, 
people continue to consume, but no longer to produce. If you're employed, yes, you consume, but in a sense, you replace what you consume with the fruits of your labor. Indeed, you get paid in some relationship with what it is you help to produce. So there is a fundamental irrationality in a system that periodically, every four to seven years, throws millions of people out of work, puts them in a situation where they consume without producing. And the only way some people can consume without producing if, is if other people produce more than they get to consume, and the difference between them then becomes the basis for those who don't produce to continue to consume. That doesn't make any sense. The unemployed want to work. We all need the output, uh, and yet we don't do it. We deny the people the jobs they want, and we deny the rest of us the output we would otherwise have. And of course, if we all, the rest of us who keep working, have to sustain the people who are no longer employed, it is no surprise, or it shouldn't be, that those of us still working begin to struggle. Which of us is going to give up our consumption level to enable other people who don't produce to consume? Will it be the working man and woman, or will it be the capitalists, the employers, who is going to be taxed or whatever the other mechanisms might be to redistribute wealth? Because every unemployment is, by definition, a redistribution of the wealth of society from those who are still working to those who aren't anymore. And so for me, in a fundamental sense, this is a failure of capitalism. It fails to provide the work that the unemployed want. It fails to save us from the struggles over redistribution that unemployment entails. Uh, there are a thousand studies that show that in direct proportion to the high, uh, rate of unemployment, we have uh, a direct proportionality between alcoholism, between drug abuse, uh, with uh child abuse, spousal abuse. I mean, every social problem we have is worsened by unemployment. You add all of that up and you add it to the grief and pain for the unemployed, and this is a massive, let me underscore this as my final point, a massive inefficiency. What good is it to be efficient in your enterprise on the micro level if periodically millions of people are sitting unhappy because they're unemployed, unproductive because they're unemployed, at the same time that the rest of society is struggling over the bitter fight, who will take in less for consumption to enable these people who don't want to be unemployed to continue to consume? I think this point about redistribution is really important because one of the things, Richard, that you've spoken at length about over the last, I guess, 11, 12 years has been the post-2008 redistribution, not only of wealth, but a redistribution of labor, uh, precisely that we saw in 2008 and the crash in 2008, many of the workers and indeed the, the very jobs that they did simply disappeared, never came back, were permanently eliminated. And what we saw was a uh, something of a transformation 
transformation of the labor force. Can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon over the last 12 years and particularly how we might see an extreme version of that same process now after 2020? Well, you know, there are many ways to get at it. And much of what happened after 2008 uh, had already been prefigured before. Often it happened a bit more harshly and over a shorter span of time. But basically, our problem can be focused in on by seeing the three things that affected the job, the quality, the quantity, and the, the type of jobs that we have. Number one, we have had, and it goes back basically to the 1980s uh, at least, we have had an exodus of jobs. We have had a certain kind of job leave the United States. Uh, in the 1980s and 90s, it tended to be mostly uh, manufacturing work. It was just uh, convenient for American corporations uh, to relocate, to move their excuse me, their production out of the United States, uh, particularly to countries where wages were much lower, where perhaps environmental regulations were either lighter or not enforced, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of all know the story. Uh, the factory closes in Cincinnati or Denver or Oakland, California, and resurfaces a few weeks or months later uh, in Shanghai or Tianjin or Brazil or India, it's not all China, but China was the most uh, powerful magnet for these jobs. And which the, the, they were manufacturing jobs because those in a way were the most, uh, they, they carried the most incentive for capitalists to move them. It, uh, manufacturing workers had been very successful in forming unions, particularly during the 1930s. Uh, that had enabled them to push their wages uh, relatively high in the United States. I remember doing a tour in Detroit, uh, watching what the UAW had achieved for auto workers working for Ford, General Motors, and, and Chrysler at the time. Uh, it was very impressive, very stunning. But the very success of workers in capitalism and getting high wages has the unfortunate side effect that the higher the wage the worker gets, the greater the incentive for the employer to go out and find a cheaper substitute. And moving production away from the United States uh, over to China, India, Brazil, or wherever was one way to do that. It decimated the manufacturing sector of this country, which has been on a long-term decline. It also undermined the power of the labor movement, which had concentrated and been successful uh, in organizing manufacturing workers. It had enormous effects, uh, making, for example, uh, transformations in a short historical time. In 1970, for example, uh, Detroit was the centerpiece of American capitalism. It was the place to which foreign leaders were flown by American presidents to see how successful capitalism was. Not only were the workers there very well paid, but they had their own homes, they could afford an automobile, they could uh, aspire to send their children to college, uh, all of that. Not only that, a good number of them were African-American, uh, giving at least the impression that finally the discrimination against that part of this society was somehow being alleviated. It was a success. 
Detroit not only was an economic success, but as, for example, the center of the Motown sound had given the world a whole new kind of music. Uh, it was just a wonderful pulsing center of capitalism. Population around 1970, just shy of 2 million people. If you go to Detroit today, half of that city is a wasteland. The population of Detroit today is 700,000 people, which means the vast majority of the people of Detroit were driven out of the city because there were no more jobs as the auto industry left Detroit for cheaper, lower-wage regions both inside and outside the United States. The second thing that happened was technology. I mean, the computer is a very powerful thing. And hooked up to the computer is the whole robot industry and now the artificial intelligence industry. And all of these were focused by the people who produced these uh, technical breakthroughs on replacing labor. That's where the market was to buy the new machinery, the new control mechanisms, and so on. And so technological unemployment wiped out uh, all kinds of jobs. When I was a high school student here in the United States, uh, I had good summer jobs being an inventory boy in a supermarket, keeping track of how many boxes of cereals flew off the shelf and, and informing my boss about when you needed to replenish them and, and being sure to keep on top. All of that is now done by the computer who scans everything that is sold in the restaurant and automatically lets the wholesaler know when another shipment of cereal boxes uh, is needed at the store. Thousands, millions of people lost their jobs. If they didn't lose it to the relocation and export of work, then they lost it to technology. The third one was, of course, also the, the problem that if, if there is a kind of job where you want a cheaper worker, but it isn't possible to go to where the cheaper worker is, well, then you bring the cheaper worker here. And we've had these waves of immigration. Uh, they're as old as the United States is a country. But in the last 20 years, they also exploded, bringing in people willing to work for less uh, at the jobs that couldn't be you know, exported out. So if you put all those three together, export of jobs, import of immigrants, and technical change, uh, you've decimated an entire generation. Jobs have disappeared. Uh, the glib promises that the latest economic downturn would quickly be over and we would be, quote unquote, back to normal, the kinds of things you hear today. They were always, uh, I'll be polite, misleading in the impression they were designed to leave on people to reassure them about something that they would think might happen, but never did. Indeed. And one of the things that you also point out that I really appreciate is kind of the fundamental dishonesty in thinking about unemployment and employment in the post-2008 period where, you know, you may have a job that gets eliminated and that that worker who had one job is now forced into two part-time jobs, a net gain of one job for the economy, but a net loss to the real economy and certainly to the individual. And that, you know, multiplied by millions, this kind of transformation of the economy, I think that's at least partially what's given rise to the gig economy, the uberization of the economic situation, particularly for younger people. Just wanted to get you to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, the, the disappearance of all the old, let's call them, all the old jobs, 
through the mechanisms I described, uh, gave a whole new generation a sense that the jobs their parents had had and that often their grandparents had had were now no longer available. A whole new way of thinking. And sure, in our society, we have to be upbeat. Uh, The system's survival depends upon it. So instead of seeing the insecurity of modern jobs uh, as what it is, which is a loss of the security we once had, we try to glorify or romanticize it by the sharing economy, the gig economy, all of that. Look at the freedom you'll have, et cetera, et cetera. This is an attempt to put lipstick on a pig. It's a disaster. You don't want to face it. It is hard to face. And so, yes, you replace it with with entrepreneurship and start-up culture and ideologies of the gig and the sharing economy. We're now going to be somehow more efficient. It's mostly BS. It is, it is a covering over a downward adjustment of the population. It's a little bit like saying uh, you can't afford hamburgers anymore, so we're going to go back to what poor people have always relied on with, and give you grain. But we're not going to call it grain. We're going to call it hamburger helper. Okay, I get it. I understand what you're trying to do. But any honest appraisal understands you went from meat and protein to grain. And that's the behavior of people who can't afford the meat. One of the things that you highlight is the irrationality of capitalism and and some of its fundamental um, uh, flaws. And I'd like to just ask you, in the time of COVID, of this pandemic, surely that irrationality is being laid bare. I mean, we see it uh, just in the fact that, you know, Bernie Sanders, when he was running, he was always talking about uh, the, the the richest country in the history of the world, he would always say. And I go to the store and I can't get toilet paper in this situation. So we have a global supply chain crisis, of course, but really it's a crisis of global capitalism, isn't it? Yeah, I think it, it, for me, for example, I find it offensive that the three uh, crashes that I've been talking about with you, uh, the one in 2000, again, the one in 2008, and now this one, are always given the name of the event that triggered them. Again, notice it's a kind of amnesia. We have had crisis every four to seven years. If it isn't a virus, then it's uh, too high prices in stocks or whatever else. Let's remember, in 2000, the crash was attributed to the so-called dot-com industry. Uh, A set of companies were getting fantastic prices for their shares on the stock market, even though they had never earned a nickel in profit and said they wouldn't for years into the future. And so we call it a crisis of the dot-com, as if that's the cause instead of the capitalist system. Well, it's easy for me to show you, as any economist could, that there have been many cases in which some subset of the stocks on the stock market got crazy prices out of whack with what they had normally done, and it didn't produce a crisis. So you can't explain the crisis by something that happens repeatedly without a capitalist crash, and you have to look elsewhere. Ditto. In 2008, what do we have? A a sizable group of people who had taken out mortgages, which they could not afford. 
to imagine that this is the first time this has happened in the United States requires that you know very little about our history. Florida has gone through that experience a dozen times in the last century, and so have many other parts of the country. Uh, this is not a normal, regular cause of crisis. It is what was the trigger, but it was not the cause, and those things are different. And likewise, if we hadn't had the uh, coronavirus, I can assure you that the financial press of the United States for the last three years has been sounding the alarm that since those folks know very well about the four to seven year average, we were due for a downturn. That it happened to be the, the virus that did it should not make people feel even though, of course, the politicians in government want us to feel that it's not the system that's at fault, and it's certainly not their stewardship that's at fault. It's rather, and then they point to some external trigger device, that's pure political buck passing and really not, uh, and really not much else. As to the irrationality, I think here's another way to get at it. Um, there is nothing written in any holy book that I'm aware of, not the Bible, not the Quran, nothing, that says that if an employer has difficulty selling his or her product, that the logical and necessary thing to do is to fire people. Capitalism does that, but there's no need to do that. Let me explain. If you only need half the number of workers, that you used to, either because you have a new machine and you don't need them, or people don't want to buy whatever it is you produce, you have a choice to make. You could either fire half your workers, handle the problem that way, or you could fire nobody and give everybody half the amount of time per week to work. Either way, you would have reduced the labor hours. But in the first case, you create unemployment. In the second case, you don't. I know why employers choose. They choose because when you fire a worker, you don't have to pay them anything. Whereas if you keep the worker on half time, well, then you'd have to pay them. But of course, you're only paying uh, your workers for half the time, which is about the same of what you would have paid if you had fired half and kept the others at full time. So the question becomes, and it's a, a real question of economics, why are we always seeing one, not the other? Why don't we see large numbers of people not unemployed? And by the way, in case you're wondering, is this a pure economic uh, exercise or an academic exercise? It isn't. Most of Western Europe right now, as we're speaking, chose to do a stimulus which keeps workers employed. Basically, the government comes in and pays 60, 70, 80, even 90 percent of the wage so that the worker stays employed, is not unemployed. But maybe the best way to show you the irrationality of capitalism is the following. Worker gets unemployed. Here in the United States, at least since 19, in the middle of the 1930s, we have an unemployment compensation system. So what we do is we let the private employer fire workers. Right now, 30 million, maybe more. And then the government picks up a portion of what used to be paid to that worker and pays him or her unemployment insurance. Now, Every person, every child could tell you in five minutes 
if they were allowed just to think out loud, that it would be much better, much better, to keep those people employed than to have them unemployed for a little bit more than unemployment pays them. You could keep them at the salary they had before. If the private sector doesn't want to employ them because it isn't profitable, which is how they make their decisions in private capitalism, because that's what they all learned in business school is what you're supposed to do. That's what you get your MBA for, to understand what it means to say that profit is the bottom line, profit is the driver, profit is the goal. Private sector uses the profit calculus, fires large numbers of people. The rational thing to do would be to come in and immediately rehire them. Who would do it? The only agency at this point that could really do that would be the government. You could rehire people, and and what would you do with them? You would do all kinds of socially useful things. To use the pandemic we're in now, let me give you just a few so you can see them. Number one, as I'm speaking to you, less than 3% of the American population, we are a country of 325-odd million people, less than 3% of them have been tested for the coronavirus. That means 97% of the people we don't know Do you have the disease with symptoms? Do you have the disease without symptoms? Have you had the disease? Do you have antibodies? Very hard to develop a reasonable program to contain a pandemic if you don't know where the disease is. Here's a job for millions of unemployed. Train them. I've been told it takes two hours to train them to take the test and go through the procedure to determine whether a person has it or not. That would be a wonderfully productive, useful use of unemployed people. Here's another one. Tracing. Find out who the people who have the disease, who they've been with over the last three or four days, or maybe a week or two. It's done in other countries with very good effect because it allows a focus on the contacts a sick person has And that's a way of trapping and treating the disease that's much more efficient than waiting uh, for symptoms to show up and for the person with or without symptoms to get tested on his or her own initiative. That would absorb millions of people. But why stop there? We know that we have to reconfigure workplaces, offices, stores, factories, arenas where people gather. That's an enormous job so that we can either have or easily convert to keeping a distance from one another so we are not vulnerable the way we were this time to whatever the next virus is. Viruses are part of nature. They've been a problem for the human race for thousands of years. We've had terrible pandemics of virus in this country and in the world, all within recent memory. There is no excuse for being as unprepared as we were. We need now also to disinfect and clean on a scale we have never done before. That needs an army of people trained and equipped. Unemployed people would be very usefully used. And then I could continue, but I don't want to waste your time, by talking about the ecological greening of America that unemployed people could be put to. But rather than give you all these hypotheticals, Let me perhaps shock a small part of your audience who have forgotten their American history. In the depths of the last depression, 
when we had unemployment on the scale that we have now. The federal government was under such pressure from the union movement, the strongest in the history of this country, the CIO, the 1930s, and two socialist parties and the communist party put pressure on the then government, a democratic government of Franklin Roosevelt, and here's what he did. He did exactly what I just said. The government came in and rehired the unemployed, depending on your estimates, about 15 million of them. So we're talking a major program. And what did they do? Well, they built some of the national parks that Americans have enjoyed uh, for the last 75 years. An incredibly powerful, meaningful social contribution. They did the first environmental work, the Civilian Conservation Corps. They used their imagination to have unemployed people get a job doing something that was remarkable, the WPA, artists, singers, painters, poets, getting together, paid by the government to travel across the United States, bringing cultural activity to every community, particularly small and medium communities who had never seen such thing before uh, in their lives. What a creative way to make something good rather than what, what we're doing now. 30 million people unemployed, feeling cast out by this society, feeling unwanted, losing whatever self-esteem they had managed to develop in their lives, feeling very bad, being a problem for their families, even before you had to be locked down and kept in a, in a small space getting into the wrong kind of activity out of a mixture of anxiety and boredom and psychological depression. Unemployment is a dead weight loss for society. And a society like ours that does it on a scale we're currently doing, that is for me a sign that capitalism as a system is no longer deserving of our loyalty or support because it's not working for the overwhelming majority of the people. Well, that's very well said and not much more to say to that. Uh, plenty more that we could talk about, but we're out of time. Richard Wolf, thank you again for coming back to Counterpunch Radio. Richard Wolf, professor of economics. Economic Update is the show. Democracyatwork.info is the website. Follow all of the work there. Richard, thanks again for coming back to the show. My pleasure, Eric, and thank you and, and Counterpunch for the enormously important work you're doing. Thank you, as always, and thank you, listeners. We'll chat again next week.